right, so last week we saw the betrayer, Judas. And what was he doing? He was leading an armed mob with torches and lanterns in the middle of the night to the Garden of Gethsemane. The objective of this mob was to apprehend and arrest Jesus of Nazareth, which they did. And then that night, that same night, um, and then the next morning, early in the morning, you need to know, John doesn't tell this, but when you read all Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together, you find out that that night and the next morning early, Jesus actually um, stood before six so-called trials. Three of them were religious, and three of them were civil. Three were Jewish, three were Roman. Now regarding the religious trials, so this is just a quick brief overview so you get, kinda get the whole picture of what the Lord is enduring this night. So first, we saw this last week, Jesus stood bound before Annas, the former high priest, father-in-law of Caiaphas. This guy was the old man who was corrupt. He led the scam on the court of the Gentiles, making a lot of money, and so Jesus messed with his pocketbook, his wallet, when Jesus went in there twice in his ministry, he overturned the tables, okay, so he stood before Annas. And then what happened after that? Annas wasn't getting anywhere with Jesus, so he sent him bound to his son-in-law, Caiaphas, the current high priest. And so Matthew, uh, John 18, 24, the last reference in the second section, he just mentions this. He doesn't give details. So this is why I put all the verses up there in case you want to read later, take a picture of it. You can read from Matthew, Mark, and Luke the details of that second so-called trial that happened in the middle of the night with Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, which was the highest ruling body in Israel at that time. After that, Caiaphas knew that he had done wrong. He knew he broke his own rules. He knew that it was illegal to try Jesus at night or any prisoner. So what did he do? He reconvened the Sanhedrin in the morning. First thing at dawn to try to make it all quote unquote official. And that's the third Jewish trial. And so what happened after that? You have some civil trials. I'm just gonna read what happened. It's in Matthew 27 verse one. It says that when morning came, okay, so if you're brand new to the Bible, where are we? Um, we are on Friday morning, the morning of crucifixion, probably around 6 a.m., okay? And so when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. That's the third Jewish trial. And they bound him and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor, all right, so here's the three civil trials. Today, in our text, John 18, 28 through 38, we're gonna look at the first so-called trial, Roman trial, before Pilate. Then, John doesn't even mention this, only Luke mentions this, but Jesus is kind of a hot potato, and Pilate doesn't wanna deal with him, and he finds out he's from Galilee, so he sends him to the ruler of Galilee, which is Herod Antipas. This guy's all messed up, he's so corrupt, all he does he ridicules Jesus, he mocks Jesus, him and his people. They clothe Jesus with splendor apparel and send the hot potato back to Pilate for a third civil trial, which we're going to see next week in our study. All right, so quick overview of the six trials so you know what Jesus is going through. And by the way, he went through all that for you and for me. And so right now, if you're looking at John chapter 18, verse 28, can you please say amen so you know where we are? John 18, verse 28. If you didn't bring a Bible, please pull it up on your phone. If you're new to Calvary, we just go verse by verse through the Bible. So let me ask it again. If you're looking at John 18, 28, please say amen so I know you're with me. Okay, so here we go. Then they, the Sanhedrin, led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. That's Pilate. And it was early morning, probably around 6 a.m. And they themselves, the Jewish religious leaders, did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled <clears throat> but could eat the Passover. Now, I don't have time to explain all that, um, but here's what's so sad to me. 
why wouldn't these guys go into a Gentile's house? Because of their man-made legalistic rules. The oral tradition that was passed down from generation to generation, man-made rules. We can't go into the Gentile's house because we'll be ceremonially defiled and then we can't eat the Passover. And so how sad that these guys were so focused on their man-made rules. How sad that these guys were so focused on their legalism, which was gigantic in their lives, that they couldn't even see the fact that they are leading an innocent man to his death. It's like these guys are religious, but they're so blind, they're so evil, they're so corrupt. Making a mountain out of mohills, but we're gonna murder a guy. It's like, give me a break. Now let's talk about Pilate. In Latin, Pilate's name means armed with javelins. Okay, that tells you a little bit about who Pontius Pilate was. And he was the Roman governor of Judea from AD 26 to AD 36. During that decade, Pilate ruled over the Jews with an iron fist, and he made so many enemies, you can't even count all of them. His primary residence was in the beautiful coastal city of Caesarea Maritima on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. That's where he primarily lived. His temporary residence was over in Jerusalem at a place called the Praetorium, which was near the temple. Now you need to know that right now where we are in the Bible, Pilate would have loved to have been back home in Caesarea, sitting on the beach, enjoying the ocean breeze, right? But he had to be in Jerusalem. Why? Because it's the feast of Passover. And there's hundreds of thousands of Jews converging on Jerusalem. And a lot of these Jews, they're nationalistic, they're patriotic, they're zealous for their country, and so Pilate's gotta be there ready with his army in case there's a riot among his subjects. And so he's not where he wants to be, but he is in Jerusalem. Now, let's switch gears here for a second. I wanna do a little bit of apologetics with you. Skeptics, if you're listening right now, say amen. Please don't tune me out. Please, please, please listen in. Allow your faith to be stirred this morning. Skeptics will often say that this book is filled with fairy tales. And I'm here to tell you that nothing could be further from the truth. Anybody that doubts the reliability of the New Testament, here's what you need to know, that Pilate was not just talked about in the scriptures, Pilate was also talked about in secular literature by a number of first century figures, first century AD figures like Josephus, the historian, and Philo, the philosopher, and Tacitus, the Roman senator. In fact, Tacitus, who lived between AD 56 and AD 120, he wrote this in his annals. Everybody, please look at the screen and please say that first name out loud. Go ahead. So who's that referring to? Christ. In secular literature. Early second century AD. This is the early 100s here. Roman senator, Christus, the founder of the name, Christianity, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius, Caesar Tiberius, by sentence of the procurator, what's his name? Pontius Pilate. So what am I doing? I'm doing apologetics with you. What does that mean? I'm giving you a defense of the faith. What am I showing you? I'm showing you testimony from the early second century from secular people that is evidence that corroborates the fact that this New Testament is historically reliable. Do you guys understand what we're doing here this morning? And it's not just secular um, testimony, it's archeological evidence as well. Did you know in 1961, archeologists were digging around ancient Caesarea Maritima and they came across an amazing discovery. I showed this to you last year. It's called the Pilot Stone. And so last year when I was in, in Israel, I took a picture of that amazing archeological discovery, but that, ladies and gentlemen, is actually the replica of the real thing. It's a replica, it's on the shores of the beautiful Mediterranean Sea. Top of your screen on the right, you can see the blue water of the Mediterranean Sea. But there it is, it's the replica, it is there in ancient Caesarea. The original stone, well I took this picture later on in our tour of Israel. We went into the Jerusalem Museum and there it is. 
That is from the first century AD. And it's there, the real um, limestone, the real thing is right there. And that ancient piece of limestone still has a few lines that are somewhat visible, even though they're hard to read. And so in Latin, here's what that stone says. To the divine Augusti, this Tiberium, this temple, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, has dedicated this. And so apparently, this stone was used in the dedication of a pagan temple from Pontius Pilate to the Roman emperor. It's an amazing archaeological discovery. It corroborates the fact that this book is historically reliable, and it's right there in Israel. If you want to go to Israel with us and see it, then come with us next year. So what's the point? The point, I'll make it again. This book is not a bunch of fairy tales. Don't believe everything that you hear from skeptics. Do your own research for yourself. Pilate was a real person, and ladies and gentlemen, I submit to you that every single person referred to in this book is real. It's real. The Book of Mormon, on the other hand, false. False. Made up. By the way, we go to Israel. We take the map. We go to the places that this book talks about. They're there. The Book of Mormon, those places are fictitious. So listen, don't be blind and just accept everything. You have your truth, I have my truth, man. Live and let live. No. Be seekers of the truth. All right, so first century Jewish philosopher Philo, he described Pilate with a bunch of words. Here's three of them. He said, Pilate, this is a contemporary of Pilate, Jewish philosopher Philo, in secular literature. He says, Pilate was merciless, he was cruel, and he was stubborn. And man, the Jews... They felt like they were under his thumb. And so what did the unhappy Jews do? They actually, if you study it, they went to Caesar and they complained about their ruler, Pilate. And you know what Caesar did? Caesar publicly rebuked the governor of Judea. And so right now, I'm telling you all this so you can understand what's going on in your Bible as we go through the story. Right now, Pilate is on a (laughs) tightrope. He's close to losing his job. He's trying to placate the Jews now so he doesn't want to upset them because they're going to complain to my boss again, go over my head, and then I'm going to get fired. But he's also trying to keep rule in Judea with a bunch of nationalistic, zealous Jews. And so he's, he's got a tough job, and that leads to verse 29. It says, so Pilate went outside to them. Okay, everybody look at me. So get the picture, right? Try to make this thing come alive in your mind. There's Pilate, right? He's in the praetorium near the temple in Jerusalem. He wanted to be back home by the ocean, right? He's there because he's got to be there. They come in. Hey, um, the religious leaders from the Sanhedrin are here. All right, send them in. They won't come in. Why? Because we're Gentiles. They don't want to be ceremonially defiled. (sighs) Okay, whatever. And he walks out. And now he's standing before the religious leaders. So it says in verse 29, Pilate went outside of them. And he said, what accusation do you bring against this man? Now, Pilate already knew they arrested him, Jesus, that night. Because there's no way that, he's, um, that there's going to be two to 600 Roman soldiers taken out from the Antonio Fortress without him giving his stamp of approval. So he already knows this is all going on. So he goes out and he says to them in verse 29, what accusation do you bring against this man, right? That's a a pretty clear question. Verse 30, they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you, right? They got an attitude because they know his job's on the line. They know that he can't do anything against them. And so disrespectful to Pilate. But here's what I wanna bring out to you guys. Pilate asked a straightforward question. They did not give him a straightforward answer. They were evasive. Their their attitude is, after he says, what accusation do you bring against this man? Their their, their attitude is simply this. Trust us, Pilate. 
If this guy wasn't a bad person, we wouldn't have brought him to you. Now, do you think Pilate trusted these guys? No, about as far as he could throw them. So what does he do? He starts pressing for more information. The reason I know that is because Luke tells us that as Jesus stood before Pilate, they, I'm sorry, they accused Jesus before Pilate of three things. Okay, so this is in Luke 23, one and two. Again, we put all the gospels together to get the whole story. They say to Pilate, he's misleading Israel. He's forbidding the Jews to pay taxes to Caesar and he's claiming to be the Messiah. Now, have you guys ever played the game uh, two, two Truths and a Lie? This is two lies and a truth. And I think you guys understand which ones are lies and which one's true. Okay, so misleading Israel, give me a break. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ is the best thing that ever happened to Israel. But what did they do as a nation? They rejected their own Messiah. He wasn't misleading Israel. He's calling them back to God, to turn back to God, to repent. And I, I, I wanna share this morning with all of you and all of you who are watching right now that if you're away from God, far away from God, listen, good news, today's the day when you can be reconciled to the Lord. As you just saying, he's a good God. He will never let you down. The world will let you down. Your friends will let you down. Your family will let you down. Your coworkers will let you down. Your boss will let you down. But Jesus Christ will never let you down. What are you doing over here? Get back over with the Lord. His arms are open wide. He's not misleading Israel. He's the best thing that ever happened to Israel. But number two, second lie. He's forbidding Pilate did you say to Pilate, he's forbidding us to pay taxes to Caesar. Give me a break. You guys know the verse. What did Jesus say? Render unto Caesar what is, and to God what is God's. And so he said to the Jews, pay your taxes to Rome. That's what you need to do. By the way, church family, you guys notice that it's upon me to apply the scriptures to our lives, right? April 18th is coming. You're like, what day is that? Tax day. What does that mean? You need to pay your taxes. Don't cheat. God doesn't bless a cheater. Be honest. Be straightforward. Did you guys know that a clear conscience makes a soft pillow? Just do what's right. Do right when people are watching. Do right when nobody's watching. Just do right and pay your taxes. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and don't forget this part, render unto God what is God's. What does that mean? That means that some of you uh, are withholding your contributions to God's ministry. Some of you are not putting God first in your finances, and you're wondering what's going on. Here's, here's what you need to do. You need to put, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So if you put God first in every area of your life, including your finances, what's God's promise? I'll take care, not of your greeds, I'll take care of your needs. And so start honoring the Lord with your first fruits, not with your leftovers. Start putting God, I dare you to do this. Start putting God first in your finances. Two lies, but then what's true? He did claim to be the Messiah. And so Pilate's gotta deal with this because that accusation, number three, involved possible treason against Rome. All right, look at verse 31 now. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your law. You know, I don't wanna deal with this, goodbye. Right, but the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Now, I don't know if Pilate knew it was this serious, and so verse 32 says, this was, this is John's commentary here. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. All right, so what's going on here? Let me fill in the blanks for you guys. We're in, I believe, AD 33. Lots of good scholars think it's AD 30. We'll find out when we get to heaven, okay? So AD 33, Passover feast. Hit the rewind button, go all the way back to AD 6. What happens in AD 6? Well, 
Judea becomes a province of the Roman Empire. And so Rome historically defeats Greece. Rome becomes the world power of the day. They began to occupy the countries within their empire. They occupy Judea. They march into Jerusalem. And what do they do? They, they rip the hearts out of the Jews. How? They took away the Jews' right to administer capital punishment, to carry out the death penalty. But here's what you need to know if you're listening, say amen here. How many of you guys believe God is sovereign? He's sovereign over all of it. And so God is using it. And how is he using it? Well, here's why. The means of capital punishment for the Jews was what? But for the Romans, it's what? Crucifixion. Now, Jesus earlier had prophesied about how he was gonna die, and it wasn't by stoning. No, 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 no. Rather, Jesus said this, and I quote, John 3, 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you'll know that I am he. John 12, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And then he says, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Ladies and gentlemen, if Rome had not taken away the Jews' right to administer capital punishment in AD 6, the, in AD 33, they would not have brought Jesus to Pilate. They would have just taken him out back and stoned him to death. More accurately, historically, they probably would have thrown him off a cliff, and then if he's still alive, they would have stoned him to make sure that he was dead. But if that's how it all went down, how would Jesus' words have been fulfilled? Here's what you gotta understand this morning, that everything Jesus ever said is gonna happen always happens. And every promise that Jesus has made to you in the New Testament, you can take it to the bank. You guys have got to start, I have got to start standing on the promises of the Lord, believing the promises of the Lord. He always speaks truth, he never speaks lies. And he spoke truth concerning the way that he was going to die. And by the way, the Old Testament scriptures predicted it as well. This always blows my mind. This has been blowing my mind for 20 years. It still blows my mind. Look at Isaiah. Okay, so what I'm doing here, bottom of the right screen, if you're new to the Bible, what year was this written around? Does everybody see that? If you see it, say amen. What does BC mean? Before he was even born. You see why I always tell you guys that the Bible is God's word? Because secular literature cannot predict the future in such amazing detail. So here it is, speaking about the Messiah, he was stoned for our transgressions. Is that what it says? No, 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 what does it say? He was pierced, crucified, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Okay, so pump the brakes, what does that mean? Chastisement, what does that mean? That means punishment. You see the gospels right here in the Old Testament. This is the substitutionary death of Christ for you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you could work your way to heaven, why in the world did Messiah die on the cross? This is the gospel 700 years BC. And he did it for you because you need a savior, because you can't earn your way to heaven. The wages of sin is death. You and I deserve death, spiritual and physical death forever away from God, but God loves you. So what did he do? He sent his son, and what happened? His son was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the punishment that brought you and I peace, and with his wounds we are healed. I wanna praise God for this. If you wanna join me, we're just gonna let the Lord know how awesome he is. Praise God, we don't have to go to hell because Jesus paid for our sins on the cross, 700 BC, Five, uh, 500 BC, look at what Zechariah said, when they, that's Israel, look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. So what's the context of this? This is a prophecy regarding the second coming of Christ, 
that when Israel sees Jesus coming, right, and they look up and they see the pierced marks in his hands, they're gonna look on the one that was pierced and they're gonna say, hey, they're gonna mourn. They're gonna cry. They're gonna repent. Why? Because our forefathers in Israel, they pierced him and it was Jesus. Man, Jesus was our Messiah all along. And praise God, Romans 11 says that when Jesus comes back, all Israel will be saved. Look at verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and he called Jesus and he said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Okay, everybody look at me real quick. I wanna show you what's going on here. During that second illegal trial in the middle of the night, when Caiaphas asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the living God? Jesus affirmed it. Caiaphas rips his clothes. Blasphemy, he's freaking out, his head's exploding. You remember what they did to Jesus? They blindfolded him, spit in his face over and over and started to punch him. Prophesy who hit you. And so when Jesus walks in to see Pilate, no doubt his face is mangled from the beating and probably has peasant clothes on. And Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And so verse 34, Jesus answered. Now most, most of the time, prisoners would be so afraid of Pilate, trembling, their voice quivering, not Jesus. Because again, God's sovereign, God's always in charge. Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And so the Lord, I think it's very interesting, asked the governor about why he was asking if he was the king of the Jews. The idea is, why are you asking me if I'm the king of the Jews? Is this for personal reasons? And Pilate's terse response shows um, what was going on in his mind and heart. He's like, am I a Jew? In other words, why in the world would I care if the Jews have a king? My allegiance is to Caesar, the Roman king. But because you're being accused of treason, I've got to deal with you. All right, look at verse 36. Jesus answered, I love this, and we're gonna spend a little bit of time on this. Very, very applicable to where we are today. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not, he said it a second time, of this world, all right? So what's going on here? Well, he wanted to alleviate any concerns that Pilate had about sedition or treason. So what does he say? Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. The idea is, don't worry, Pilate. My kingdom is not a worldly kingdom. I'm not some politician wanting power and position and prestige. My kingdom is not a worldly kingdom. My kingdom is a heavenly kingdom. Spiritual ambitions, the spiritual ambition of redemption of the world, the spiritual ambition of righteousness. That's the idea here of what Jesus is saying. Now I told you I wanna spend a little bit of time on this because it's applicable to where we are today. And so here's what I wanna say. One day the Pharisees came to Jesus during his ministry. And they asked him, when is the kingdom of God gonna come? And Jesus' reply is very, very interesting. Check it out. He said, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst and toss of you. Now, that's a very, 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 very important verse. Let's talk about it. The Greek word entos means within. So the kingdom of God is within you, inside you. But there's also a different shade of meaning for that Greek word. And it's in the midst of you. 
And then within your soul is more like within and inside. So what I'm seeing here from this Greek word is that there's a different shade of meaning. And why? Well, here's why. Because ladies and gentlemen, when you interpret words, you keep them in the context. And so what was entos being used for? Regarding whom? Okay, so regarding the Pharisees, ladies and gentlemen, as long as the Pharisees continue to reject Jesus as their Messiah, guess what? The kingdom of God was not gonna come within or inside of them. But since the king was in their midst, Jesus was standing right in front of them when they asked the question, he said, the kingdom of God entos, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Christ was in the midst of them. Wherever the king is, that's where his kingdom is. That's the bad news. Because of their unbelief, they missed both the king and the kingdom. But there's good news. And the good news is that anybody who would turn to King Jesus in repentance and faith, they could have the kingdom inside of them. Now, now think about this, because this is exciting to me, and it should be exciting to you as well. After Jesus Christ died on the cross, after he was buried, after he rose from the dead, after he ascended to the right hand of God, when the sun went up, you know this, who came down? Tell me. The Holy Spirit, on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached the gospel to thousands of people. And what was their response in Acts chapter two? They repented of their sins and they put their faith in Jesus Christ. And what was the response? The Holy Spirit of God, the King and the kingdom came inside of their souls, entas. The kingdom of God in this age of grace is within you. And ladies and gentlemen, the good news doesn't end there. It extends to us. It extends to you. And it extends to me if we're just willing for it to extend to you and to me. And so think about this. If you're here this afternoon and you don't have a relationship with Jesus... And I know there's people like that because a lot of people are religious but they don't have a relationship with Jesus. So if you're, today, you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you can have your own day of Pentecost. You can hear the gospel. You can repent of your sins. You can turn to Jesus Christ the King in faith. And guess what's gonna happen if you do that based on the authority and the promise of God's word? The king and the kingdom is gonna come entos inside of you. You're gonna be born again. Christ is gonna change your heart. You're not gonna be religious, but you're gonna have a relationship with the, with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it can happen for you. But as long as you keep rejecting Jesus, he'll never come inside. And he wants to come inside. He loves you and he wants to be your savior and your Lord. Now, having the king and his kingdom come inside in this age of grace, what does that do? It prepares us for the physical manifestation of the kingdom, which is coming at the end of the age. So you guys see that? I don't wanna confuse anybody. Right now, we're in the age of grace. What does that mean? For born-again Christians, the king and the kingdom is inside of our souls. By the way, have you guys seen what's going on at Asbury? The college? All right, and so you know what really irks me? Is that already there's people tearing it apart, criticizing it. Look, Fox News, by the way, they weren't tearing it apart at all, but other people, Christians were tearing it apart. Fox News went down there. What's going on? We don't understand. Can you explain this? Ladies and gentlemen, the kingdom of God is inside of us. And don't criticize it, give it some time. These are kids who are seeking the Lord. What are we doing pointing out problems? Let's stop being Pharisees. Let's stop being critical. And let's pray for those kids coming to the Lord. And no, you kind of, if you don't know the Lord and you're looking from the outside, you don't know what's really going on because the kingdom of God is in here. 
And not only that, what if you're already a Christian, but you're backslidden? What if you're a Christian, but you are far away from the Lord? Well, here's what you need to know. If you're with me here, say amen. If you're a Christian and you're backslidden, you don't need to be resaved, you need to be revived. Salvation is for the lost, revival is for the saved. Revival, revived, is for people who've already been vibed. <laughs> you're cold spiritually, you're doing your own thing. You and Jesus are miles apart. Well, good news for you too. Just like there was good news for those who don't have a personal relationship with Christ, there's good news for you too. God loves you as well. He's not doing this, he's doing this. Today's the day to confess your sins and resubmit yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And what's he gonna do? What's he gonna do? He's gonna revive you. You're cold spiritually, but the fires of your first love are gonna be renewed and you're gonna be excited again about being a follower of Jesus Christ. Don't let this day end without you, if you don't know Jesus, giving your life to Jesus Christ and being born again, putting your faith in him. And don't let this day end, if you're a Christian but you're backslidden, without rededicating your life to the Lord. I'm telling you, I've been praying, and a lot of people in this church have been praying for revival at Calvary PSL. I think we may be on the brink of it, and that could spill over to a spiritual awakening, but we gotta start confessing our sins. We gotta stop gossiping. We gotta stop criticizing. We gotta stop being Pharisees who are looking down our nose, picking apart every single thing, and we got to be humble before the Lord and love one another as Christ has loved us, and ladies and gentlemen, when love's in the house, you can't and keep people away and it's gonna spread. Does anybody wanna be part of this? If you do, let me know right now. Put your hands together. I do. I do. I certainly do. Because I know when revival comes, marriages are saved. Kids grow up in Christ-centered homes in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and God's word is kept. And so, what is the evidence of the king's reign in our lives? Paul told us right here. He said, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Okay, so spiritual inventory in your own heart before the Lord. Put the defensive wall down. God's a good God, he loves you. Stop fighting God. Put the wall down. Just ask yourself the question right now, I'm asking you to do this in your seat. Ask yourself the question before you and the Lord, is this indicative of my life? Does this exemplify my life? Is it really about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit? If the answer is no, today's the day to get right with God so you can experience his peace that surpasses all understanding. You can experience his joy unspeakable and full of glory and you can live out the righteousness of God in your life today is the day. And so the kingdom of the world may be about power and position and prestige but the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God is about righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit and you need to know it's about truth. Everybody say truth. That leads us to verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, so you're a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king? For this person, purpose, I was born, okay, there's Christmas in the Gospel of John, by the way, incarnation, and for this purpose, I have come into the world. He didn't start to exist in Mary's womb. He is the eternal son of God. He came into the world. Why'd you come, Jesus? To bear witness to the, shout out the word, please. Everybody say truth. 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 Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And he walked out. All right, let's stop right there. After saying what is truth, Pilate did not give Jesus an opportunity to answer. 
He's like, what is truth? He walks away. You know why he walked away? You know why he got out of the room? When you can't take the heat, you get out of the kitchen. Conviction of the Holy Spirit. So what is truth? I'm out of here. Now, I wanna talk about this thing about truth. Many people in our culture believe there is no truth. Many people in our culture say that you can't be certain if anything is really true because, listen to this, truth is relative, it's not absolute. Truth is relative based upon your environment, based upon your culture, based upon your geographical location, based upon who you're talking about. Truth changes, truth is relative, it's not absolute. And when someone says there is no truth, what should we say to them? Those of you guys uh, who listen to Frank Turek's podcast, you know the answer to this. So how should we respond? They say there is no truth. What's our reply? Can you guys say our reply, please? Right, how many of you guys heard Frank Turek's podcast? I would love to try to imitate him, but I'm not from New Jersey, I'm from Tampa, right? But he always says at the beginning of his podcast, is that true? In other words, follow the logic here. If we can't be certain if anything is true, how can we be certain that their statement is true? Do you guys see that? There is no truth. Is that true? You see, it's self-defeating. And so what is truth? This is the title of the message. I have to define it for you, right? So I got this from Norman Geisler, Dr. Norman Geisler, who's with the Lord. Truth is that which corresponds to reality, period. There's your definition of truth. Somebody said, I thought you would say the Bible's true, truth. And I said, well, the Bible corresponds to reality. Okay, so that's the definition. Uh, I'm telling you, our culture desperately needs this. And so the opposite of what is true is what? False. So let me illustrate it this way. My name is Mike Wiggins. I was born in November of 1966. For those of you who are doing math, I'm 56. I'm married to Stacy for 33 years. I, we have three beautiful daughters, three amazing sons-in-law, and nine grandchildren. Now, what I just shared with you, those statements about my identity, they all correspond to reality. And the opposite of any of my statements are false. So let me give you the proof. There, I am, there we are. Okay, so praise God for his grace. So... There I am in the middle, my beautiful wife Stacy. I'm holding Addie's hand, she's holding Micah's hand. They belong to Stacy's left, Mary and Angel. Mary's our youngest daughter, we just found out she's pregnant, so praise God. And then Angel is her husband, and then to Angel's left is Desio, our other son-in-law. He is married to our middle daughter, Mandy. They have little Beatrice, and Mandy's been pregnant now for some time. Something's in the water. All right, and then you go to the right of me, and you have Ethan, you guys know Ethan, and then Megan is our oldest daughter, and they have four beautiful children, our grandkids, Serafina, Logan, Benaiah, and Shiloh. So there is proof that my statements earlier corresponded to reality, and any statement opposite of what I said are false statements. You say, where in the world is he going with this? Well, I'll get there. When I was in seminary, I learned a really important law. It's called the law of non-contradiction. You guys should memorize this law. This law teaches that opposite or contradictory statements cannot be true at the same time and in the same sense. That is a law of life. It never changes, and it's hard as nails. And listen, if you try to deny that, you affirm the law. In other words, someone says, I don't believe that opposite or contradictory statements cannot be true at the same time in the same sense. In other words, I believe that opposite statements can 
be true at the same time. Okay, so if somebody says that, well, how do you respond? You say, do you think the opposite of what you said is true? And they say, of course not. Anybody who disagrees with me is wrong. You just affirm the law of non-contradiction. I think five of you got it. <laughs> but listen, take a picture, do whatever you gotta do because that never changes and I'm telling you our culture desperately needs that. Opposite or contradictory statements cannot be true at the same time in the same sense. That law, I finally got to where I was getting to, debunks religious pluralism. This is what our culture teaches. This is what the culture wants to teach your kids, moms and dads. And God has charged you, dad, to be the head of your marriage and the head of your home and you and your wife to be the head of your kids and you are the guardians of them and you gotta protect them. The culture's gonna try to teach your kids that opposing world religions can all be true that all major religious roads lead to heaven, whatever that means, if there's a heaven, and all sincere people will be saved. Religious pluralists say what they believe is that it doesn't matter what a person believes, as long as you're sincere, if there's a God out there, he'll accept you. They would say that even though world religions oppose one another, contradict each other in what they teach, as long as their adherence, the adherence of Hinduism, the adherence of Buddhism, the adherence of Islam, right, the adherence of whatever other religion, as long as they're sincere, everything's gonna be fine. Don't judge, you have your truth, I have my truth. Anybody ever heard this? And people who make those statements think they're so noble. They're so right. And they're so wrong. And they're doing so much damage in our society. How many of you guys know the devil's a liar? And so let me, let me give you two examples. Biblical Christianity. Please, please stay with me. Biblical Christianity teaches that Jesus Christ was and is the divine incarnate son of God. You guys know this, right? Amen. Biblical Christianity teaches that Jesus Christ was and is the eternal divine incarnate son of God. 100% man, 100% God. Every other world religion and every pseudo-Christian cult denies that statement, that teaching. Every single one of them. They deny that. So what do you have? You have two opposing teachings. Biblical Christianity says salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, apart from meritorious works. You can't earn your way to heaven. Every single other world religion and pseudo-Christian cult, every single one of them, check it out denies that statement. What do you have? Two opposing truths. Where are you getting at? Here's what I'm getting at. According to the law of non-contradiction, what cannot be denied without being affirmed. How in the world can you have biblical Christianity, world religions, and pseudo-Christian cults that teach opposite things? How in the world can all those things be true at the same time? I respectfully submit to you that Christianity is true and anything that denies it or contradicts it is absolutely false. That's the truth. That's the truth in Port St. Lucie. That's the truth in Russia, in Australia, in China, in India, or wherever you go around the world, because truth is absolute. Truth is not relative. And you say, well, that's not kind. That's not, into that's not tolerant. That's not being, that's being offensive, pastor. Listen, I'm about the truth. Truth is most important. Truth will save your life. You gotta have the truth. You gotta stand on the truth in this cancel culture today. You gotta stand up for what is right and what is true. Because if you give in to all this stuff about you have your truth, I have my truth, just live and let live, what you're actually doing is you're sending the person to hell.
or I'll, I'll, I'll retract that statement and say, you're not doing anything to help that person get to heaven. You guys see how important this is? And so stand for the truth. Who cares who cancels you? Audience of one. Audience of one. Jesus said this, I am the way, shout it out, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You're going to heaven, you need Jesus. You say, that's intolerant. Jesus was intolerant. You know why? He put truth above tolerance. No amens for that one? Amen. Truth goes above tolerance. In our culture, tolerance is like the number one value. No, 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 no. Truth is above tolerance. And so, by the way, Jesus proved that's true. How? He rose from the dead. I heard somebody during first service over here somewhere say, well, how do you know what's true? Here's why, he rose from the dead. No other religious leader rose from the dead. He's the only one who rose from the dead. I'm gonna do three messages on the resurrection coming up soon. The last one will be on Easter Sunday and we'll look at all of that when we get there. Let me just read these last two verses and be done. And so, what is truth? He walks out. And then middle of verse 38, Pilate goes back outside to the Jews and he tells them, I find no guilt in him. Now that should have been the end of it. But you gotta know that Pilate's not a leader, he has no convictions, he's a chameleon. He's trying to placate the Jews, so he puts the ball in their court. This should never have happened. God is sovereign. Verse 39, he says to the Jews, you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? He's gotta throw in that. Verse 40, they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. He was not just a robber, he was an insurrectionist, and he was a murderer, and the crowd picked the murderer over the Son of God. 